Hello, and welcome to this policy and practice seminar hosted by the UCL Department of Political Science and School of Public Policy, jointly with the Center for U.S. Politics. Uh, my name is Colin Provost. I'm an associate professor in the department, and I'm your chair this evening. The title of this seminar is The U.S. Supreme Court and the Future of Administrative Law. The current conservative supermajority on the U.S. Supreme Court has a chance to reshape American law in a dramatic way. One such way is in the realm of administrative law as members of the conservative majority have sought to restrain the powers of federal bureaucratic agencies. Much of the current debate around administrative law began with the 1984 Supreme Court case Chevron versus Natural Resource Defense Council in which the court said that federal agency rulings should stand if they're based on reasonable interpretation of a federal law and if Congress has not spoken directly to the issue. While some observers have predicated that, predicted that the court would kill off Chevron deference, instead we've witnessed use of what's known as the major questions doctrine, which has raised the question of how far agencies can stretch their capabilities on major policy questions before having to seek new legal authorization from Congress. Major questions arose in the 2022 case of West Virginia versus EPA, where the conservative majority said that the Environmental Protection Agency needed explicit congressional consent to implement its ambitious climate policies. Similar future decisions could profoundly affect federal policy implementation and law enforcement, possibly shifting powers to state and local government. Consequently, the stakes are sky high as the Supreme Court debates the appropriate policymaking authority for the federal bureaucracy for important issues that go beyond, often go beyond American borders. And of course, there's also concerns about how much power an unelected federal bureaucracy should have. To discuss this topic, we're delighted to welcome three speakers whom I'll introduce um, in the order in which they'll make their opening remarks. Hilaria Di Gioia is Senior Lecturer in American Law and Associate Director of the Center for American Legal Studies at Birmingham City School of Law. Her research focuses on questions of law and policy within the US Federalist structure. She's the editor of the British Journal of American Legal Studies, as well as the inaugural Philip Davies Fellow of the Eccles Center for American Studies at the British Library. Rachel Augustine Potter is an Associate Professor in the Department of Politics at the University of Virginia. She's an, the author of the award-winning book, Bending the Rules, Procedural Politicking in the Bureaucracy in 2019. Professor Potter also contributes to the Brookings Institution Center on Regulation and Markets and has served as a consultant to the Administrative Conference of the United States. Jim Tierney was the Attorney General of Maine from 1980 to 1990. He currently is a lecturer at Harvard Law School where he teaches classes on Citizens General and has directed the Attorney General Clinic. Previously, Professor Tierney was the Director of the National State Attorneys General Program at Columbia Law School. Since his time as Maine Attorney General, he's, been, he's consulted with serving State Attorneys General and the National Association of Attorneys General. Tonight, each speaker will speak for about eight to 10 minutes. We'll then have a panel discussion for another 10 minutes or so thereabouts, and then we'll open the floor to questions. If you do have a question, please raise your virtual hand and I'll call on you. Um, and you can unmute yourself if you like, or you can write um, your question in the, in the chat. Uh, you, can, or you can write your question, I should say, in the, in the Q&A function as opposed to the chat as well. Okay, um, as a final note before I hand over to, um, Ilaria, the whole session, including the Q&A, is being recorded and will be posted online on the department's website and our YouTube channel and our podcast after the event. If you speak, you'll be heard in the recording. If you don't speak, you won't. Um, we'll let you, let you know when the recording is available and we hope you might want to share it with others, okay? 
And um, on that final note, I will hand it over to Dr. Dijoya. So, uh, good evening, everyone, and thank you, Dr. Provost, for uh, for inviting me to speak today. Um, so, first of all, when we talk about the rise of the administrative state, we talk about the doctrine of, of administrative deference. Uh, Dr. Provost has given an excellent uh, introduction of, uh, of the case of Chevron that actually expanded then administrative deference and the power of uh, agencies to interpret statutes uh, enacted by Congress. Now, this is just a, a quick clarification before, before I start. Uh, Chevron deference is not, is not the only existent uh, uh, deference in the US. There is another type of deference, and that is our. Uh, don't get confused between the two. Our is deference to uh, regulations that are enacted by the agencies uh, themselves. Today, we, we talk about Chevron and uh, generally speaking about administrative deference to statutes enacted by Congress. Um, so first of all, a quick uh, um, quick overview of why uh, administrative deference. So the use of agencies' regulatory power is at the basis of the modern administrative state. Agency and administrative offices, such as, for example, the Environment Protection Agency, the Department of Education, they do issue regulation and, and enforce laws. Now, Congress doesn't have the capacity to pass laws that, that address those complex issues. And this is actually the reason why uh, we see agencies uh, uh, you know, increasingly issuing, uh, issuing regulation. Just uh, um, after the Civil War, with the expansion of, of the United States, with the expansion of the state in itself, um, then uh, agencies have seen their, uh, their powers uh, to grow from this point of view. Um, so therefore, what happened? Uh, Congress doesn't have the capacity to pass those, uh, those laws and therefore uh, delegates to agencies that are staffed with uh, scientists, uh, other specialists, uh, the power to craft regulation that address uh, those problems. So think about, for example, air pollution, uh, COVID-19 uh, uh, exposures in workplaces, drug testing, the disposal of nuclear waste, and so on and so forth. So the, the expertise that is found in the, in the agency is often needed um, in order to, um, to implement those uh, uh, policies that are dictated, of course, by, by Congress. Um, to give a, a, a clear example of, uh, of administrative deference, think about the Clean Air Act. Uh, in 1963, Congress ordered that the Environmental Protection Agency should have regulated at air quality standards. So based on that authority, the uh, Environmental Protection Agencies has started issuing uh, regulations that are often life savings. So Think about, for example, air, uh, air pollution, think about chemical, chemical mechanical plants, think about uh, greenhouse gases. So Biden, the president, has used uh, the Clean Air Act actually to defer, to delegate this uh, interpreting power to the, um, to the Environmental Protection Agency. Um, of course, as uh, Dr. Provost has uh, well well explained before, this um, power to interpret 
Congresses. Statutes has been challenged and has, be, has be recently been challenged in the West Virginia case. The West Virginia case gave rise to, to what we call the major questions doctrine um, or the major questions concept. And there is a bit of a warning. Um, we should always be careful to define a doctrine uh, as such. Uh, because uh, scholars uh, sometimes disagree as to what, what is the, the time, what is the point in which a concept or a jurisprudence tendency actually becomes a doctrine. Um, so the major question doc doctrine um, has been lingering around in the Supreme Court for, for a decade um, or more. And that's finally been given um, a good explanation and that's finally uh, been um, been established in the West uh, Virginia case. The West Virginia case. What does he say? Uh, very simply, it says uh, if the question is a major political economic question, if there is such a big issue, then agencies should not interpret a, a statute passed by Congress. Um, at this point, and since this very recent decision of the Supreme Court, there are two main issues that I would like to, to put on the table and discuss today with the audience. Um, the first question that I have is, where will these major questions doctrine uh, fit within the American administrative law and in particular within the Chevron uh, framework. So, so far for 40 years, we have been used to the, to the Chevron administrative deference and we've been used to the uh, two steps uh, as uh, explained by Justice Stevens in the, in the Chevron decision. Two-step process, usually when the courts consider a case involving the interpretation uh, of a statute by an agency, the courts usually should ask themselves two questions. The first question is an assessment of whether Congress has already spoken to the precise question. So has Congress already given a direction, guidance? And the second step, the second question that the courts ask themselves is whether the administrative agency interpretation is reasonable. So we've been used to these two steps with Chevron, then another case, MEAD, and it's spelled M-E-A-D, added a so-called step zero to those uh, two steps. And actually the step zero is when the court should inquire before going to step one and two that I mentioned before, whether there was congressional intent to delegate the interpreted power to the agency. So the courts were already facing, let's say, quite a complex mechanism to, to resolve um, issues of interpretation of statutes enacted by Congress. So we said we had mid, step zero, step one and two of Chevron. When I ask where will then the West Virginia case sit, I'm asking whether will it be a step zero zero? So will it come before the step uh, zero of meat, or will it be a step three? Will it come therefore after the Chevron, the Chevron two steps? Uh, in other words, if that is the case, will it be incorporated within the Chevron framework? Will the question, will the major doc, the major questions doctrine become 
part of the Chevron framework, or will it be, and perhaps this is what, what I believe what happened, a completely different uh, framework, parallel? Will it be living a parallel life with, uh, with Chevron? And therefore, will there be cases in which Chevron will be applied, and will there be cases in which uh, West Virginia will be applied? But, but but then at that point the question is how do we decide in which baskets uh, does uh, that cheese is um, each case fall? So this is this is actually the first sort of issue that the West Virginia case, the major questions doctrine ruling poses. Um, the other question, and again. Perhaps we don't have yet an answer to this, but it would be useful um, to, to speculate on what will happen is what will the states do with the major question doctrines? The state courts in particular, will they follow the approach of the Supreme Court or will they derail from, from that? I think that those are very, very interesting questions. Um, and I would like to, to discuss them with you to speculate on, uh, on the future of administrative states in uh, of administrative deference in the United States. Um, thank you very much. Thank you, Ilaria. Um, now to Rachel. Uh, thanks, Colin. Um, and thanks for putting this panel together. This is a topic where we're just really unsure what's happening right now. And so it's it's useful to get our heads together, I think, and kind of puzzle through what might happen in the administrative state given all of this like giant uncertainty and chaos. So I'm gonna talk about rulemaking, which is a space where we might see some of these questions get answered in the next couple of years. So rulemaking, if you're not familiar with it, is a process that agencies follow that at the end of it, creates binding law. And so the way it works is that an agency like the EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency, will write a proposal. They'll say, we want to make a policy change on, say, climate change. And they'll write out the proposal and publish it in the Federal Register. So anybody can go and look at what the EPA is thinking at that moment. And then there's a public comment period. So that public comment period is a time we hear about these rules because lots of interest groups are weighing in and they're saying, oh, we like this part, we don't like this part, but anybody can comment. If it's a big rule like climate change rules we've heard a lot about um, in recent years, there's millions of comments that the EPA gets. So they get millions of comments and then after that comment period, they read through them and they weigh in. Do we want to do these things um, that people are suggesting? Why or why not? So they take that, they deliberate, and then they write a final rule. That final rule is a policy laid out in the Federal Register that says exactly what the agency is going to do. And it comes with a preamble that explains why they're why or why not they're doing the things that people ask them to do in the public comments. So following that, there's a waiting period and then the rule takes legal effect. Now, this is a very long process, can take many years. Um, and at the end of it, right, we have binding law. So there's two important points about rulemaking that are really, I think, salient to this conversation. One is that these are laws that carry the same force and effect as if Congress had legislated in this area. So unelected bureaucrats making law. And we know that about 90% of new laws in the US are created through the rulemaking process and not through the legislative process. 
So that's an important point. And then just the volume and scope of rulemaking. So I mentioned climate change rules, but we see rules on everything. What is an organic piece of fruit? What counts as organic? How should your pension plan be? What is the default option when you enroll in a new pension plan? What is, um, can an employer make you sign a non-compete contract when you start a new job? These are all questions that are resolved today through rulemaking and not by Congress. They're important questions that affect people's lives, but agencies are deciding them. So you can see why when we, the courts are saying, maybe the administrative state is taking over a little bit of this role that Congress should be playing, rulemaking is the place where we might really see the, the tensions and the conflict play out. So um, I want to think about, well, what are agencies going to do in light of all this uncertainty? But before I do, I want to pick up on a point that Ilaria also made, which is that Congress is, is part of this story. We're talking today about courts and the executive branch, but Congress is really the, the party indicted by the courts here, right? Congress has not answered major questions. It has left them for agencies. Congress has delegated a lot of authority to the executive branch. And the question is, is that, is that appropriate, right? And so given this rebuke, can we expect Congress to kind of step up to the plate and start answering major questions? And I think the answer is clearly no, um, for a couple of reasons. One is the problems we're talking about that are likely to trigger these court challenges and threats. They're wicked problems. They're the hard problems. Congress gets two years to solve hard problems. That's it, right? Every two years, we have a new set of people coming to the bargaining table in Congress, and it's hard to do that quickly to fix climate change or healthcare. The other thing we know about Congress right now is that we have an era of extremely high partisan polarization. So not only is it hard to solve problems in a short time window, we also have two parties that cannot agree on consensus about how we should solve problems. So what does that mean? It means when we get new statutes that, that might address some of these policy issues, they have ambiguity in them. That ambiguity is the, sort of the price of having the system we have and who has to interpret that ambiguity. Right now it's agencies and the administrative state. And I think it's going to continue to be that. Um, so given the agencies face threats in issuing rules and Congress is going to keep probably giving them that authority, what can we expect agency rules? How should they, they might differ um, in light of all of this uh, uncertainty? Well, I think one thing we can expect to see is that agencies are gonna start playing defense a lot more. So those rules that they're writing when they have that preamble that says, here's why we're doing what we're doing, we can expect those to be a lot more um, defensive, a lot more um, explaining why this, what we're proposing is not a major question. It is in keeping with past practice and really laying out a case um, for future litigation that is probably going to come their way. So that's one thing we can expect. Another thing we might expect is if you're facing a lot of legal challenges um, and a lot of uncertainty, then you're probably going to put a lot more lawyers on the case. So most rules are written in program offices by people who know a lot about organic products or um, pensions, but we might see a lot more staffing up of agencies by lawyers, right? Because they, they need them. Um, and that has lots of implications for how we govern, right? Lawyers think about the world in a particular way that's different than public health officials 
or people with other substantive backgrounds. Um, the final thing we might see is just a lot, even more slowing of the rulemaking process. Um, it's it's a slow process already, but we're, what we're doing is putting a lot of uncertainty on top of that um, um, to a set of agencies that don't want to be the example case of why what is a major question and don't want to see their rules overturned because they're so costly. So um, a, a slowing of the process that's already slow is not a great outcome for anyone, I don't think. The last thing I'll say before turning it over to Jim is I don't think we're looking at a 30-year proposition to resolve all of these questions. Um, this is much more on the immediate horizon. So agencies are actively writing rules right now. They're writing ambitious rules, like I can point to the Federal Trade Commission, which has a lot of rules that are very ambitious in nature and have invited lots of conversation already about are they are these are major questions that the FTC is asking. Um, and so I think we're the court is going to be hard pressed to ignore this for very long. So um, sooner rather than later. But um, I'm curious uh, what others have to say. So I'll stop there. Okay, thank you so much, Rachel. Um, and finally, we'll hear from uh, Jim Tierney. Sure. Well, our previous two speakers are going to have a great more insight into all of this than I am, but I'll do the best I can. Um, the first caveat is one that my wife gives me all the time when I come home ranting and raving about all this stuff. She'll say, there you go thinking like yourself again. All right. We all think like ourselves again. We reach out in our own lives and our own intellects to try to find something that makes sense out of something that may be impossible to make any sense out of. So I think Rachel's correct. I think that the agencies will continue to do what they do. I hope so. Um, they'll lawyer up a little bit more, which may or may not protect them, uh, because the status of the law now is clearly untenable. The law now allows any of our 673 federal judges uh, the unfettered discretion to decide what they consider to be major. I mean, there's no standard here. This uh, Justice Kavanaugh in his, um, you know, in, in his one of his dissents in his hearing said, "Well, major kind of depends on what you think, you know, whatever the judges make up." And it's not even all the judges, of course. It's just five judges. So the lack of predictability is the exact opposite of administrative law. The whole point of administrative law is to take statutes which are inherently vague or <clears throat> not precise. I've drafted enough statutes to know that you kind of leave them vague on purpose because you're trying to get the bill through. You're trying to get it through, right? So you leave it vague on purpose, and then you know that rulemaking will come in and provide stability for everyone, and everyone will play by the same rules. That's the basic principle. So if you don't want to play by the same rules, that's this power gives immense authority. You have the capacity to pick and choose a lot of your 673, which judge you try to get to. That's another whole issue. And then when you get lucky if you're trying to invalidate the rule with a judge, they can issue a nationwide injunction. Now, we talk about major in terms of a lot of money. It's not necessarily a lot of money. We're saying major questions doctrine taking over the gun regulation issue. We're seeing it obviously taking over the abortion issue. We're seeing it in President Biden's school loans. Um, and we're seeing it um, in a way that many of us just can't predict. I, I just posted in the um, in the chat, for example, the state treasurer of Utah uh, pulled funds out of what they call ESG investing 
uh, environmental investing because he feels it is Satan's plan. All right. He, he thinks that Satan is what has correct is, is, you know, not not the banks, not all of us where we make our investment decisions, but Satan's behind this. As a matter of fact, he might consider this entire exercise that we're in this evening part of Satan's plan because we're even discussing it. So when you're dealing with elected officials who are living in, in, in just a world and in a parallel universe to those of us who are committed to administrative law, the ability to get predictability is very, very difficult. And that's where I have to believe that the Supreme Court, who clearly had no idea what they were doing, none at all, um, they do that a lot, a bunch of law professors, right? They, they kick these things off, they make these decisions, and then they sit back and see what happens. And so I think we're in a position where we're going to see potentially some serious economic dislocation as a result of these major industries will say, we don't know how to make a car, right? We don't know how to make a truck. We don't know how to build a road. We don't know how to do any of these things if one of our seven, 673 judges decides that somehow they've exceeded a federal law or a federal regulation that may have been enacted 25 or 30 years ago. We're seeing this in guns a lot. We're seeing rules struck down by federal judges about something which we've all lived with years. So that lack of, it seems to me that if the Supreme Court grows up, basically becomes a little more mature, and understands the implications of what they're doing, they're going to have to scale this major questions back. And there's many different ways they can do that. They can change the rules of standing. They can tighten up uh, major, what they consider major from the top. But right now we're in a high level of uncertainty, very high level of uncertainty. So what I would advise is that agencies just keep doing what they're doing and hope lightning doesn't strike and someone gets mad at their particular regulation. It would usually be the someone would usually be someone who contributed a lot of money to somebody, usually through dark money. The whole major questions doctrine has been dreamed up through, it's not really a doctrine, it was just dreamed up in the last four or five years by some major so-called think tanks in the States. We have these rules where you can start think tanks, you don't have to say where the money comes from. So um, that it just appeared like in the last four or five years. So it's kind of it was mentioned in a couple of decisions in the tobacco case 25 years ago and passing in the ACA case maybe 10 years ago. But basically, it's a new it's a new doctrine. So I don't know. Uh, uh, Colin characterized the judges as conservative. This doesn't sound conservative to me. Conservative means being stable, means going on the same direction. Obviously, it's heightened by a liberal administration in the States, the Biden administration, using uh, you know, using rules to, uh, for example, Federal Trade Commission, I think Rachel's completely correct. The number of rules that are, um, are, are pushing the boundaries. And so that's where we're going to see the immediate, the immediate hit back. But we have an unpredictable situation. States, I'm supposed to be an expert on states. Essentially, states do not have the internal capacity to do really big national extensive um, uh, rulemaking, probably with the exception of California, maybe one or two other states. California is perfectly capable of drafting, taking their own laws, drafting their own regulations, avoiding the federal courts altogether. And because California is such a big player in the marketplace, drive the entire national marketplace towards their standards. We see that in the environmental area in California. But for the vast number of states, they can draft rules based on their own state statutes, and I don't see any change from all of this major questions doctrine. People at the state level will generally ignore it. 
but those won't be the big cases you're talking about, the climate change cases or the big manufacturing places or the privacy cases or the labor cases. But there I go, thinking like myself again. Dawn? Okay, thank you very much. Uh, thank you very much to all three of you. Um, I, I, I still have a couple, there are a few questions that come to mind um, with, with all of these insightful comments. I suppose, um, Rachel, I was most struck by what you talked about with agencies playing defense more. Um, and, and you've written extensively already about, I guess, agencies kind of playing offense and defense, right? With the procedural politicking and, and the ways in which they're strategic in order to get rules passed. You mentioned that they might lawyer up more, which Jim also mentioned, um, and that maybe they'd be more careful about the language. Um, can, can you be, and, and this can be for all three of you, right? Um, can you be more specific about what you think some of these additional ways of playing defense might be? Like what what else, um, you know, if, if it is about the language they use in the rules or, or that sort of thing as well? Sure, so I mean, Imagine you're an agency, you're writing a rule, you have good reason, hopefully, to do this, right? And so you're investing all of these resources in it, and you do not want to be the exemplar, the one who's like, this is what a major question is, right? And so what are you going to do? So I think longer preambles, as I said, is is probably something we didn't expect. And I was really thinking about, as I was saying that, a paper by Ricky Ravez and uh co-author where they talk about uh recommend that agencies start talking about regulatory what they call regulatory antecedents so really in their rules talking about how what they're proposing meshes with past practices of that agency right and so you can see this is like the law professors at work right this is two law professors writing um so that's one thing we can expect i also think we can we might think if you're an agency, right, there's no like unit of a rule. A rule is what you make it. It can have 37 different parts, right, that kind of work together or kind of don't. It can be like omnibus in that sense, or you can parcel it out, right? And so we've seen there's been some scholarship on like when do agencies break one policy into like six parts, right? And so, so if you're an agency and you're like, I want to do this big thing, but I do not want to provoke the courts. Can you do it in three smaller parts? And then it's sort of three pieces that in total makes a big policy, but in in piecemeal parts is actually not really going to draw as much attention to what you're doing. So that's called regulatory bundling. Like you can bundle or unbundle um, as you see fit. There's no standard for what needs to be a rule um, in terms of the, the policy content. And so that's very much possible. Um, I think we also might see agencies pointing to things like committee reports from Congress, right? So committee reports are, you can stick anything in a committee report and the whole chamber doesn't have to vote on that report. And so there's a lot of language that ends up in committee reports that agencies traditionally have leaned on, but you might see them um, pointing to that more directly in their rules to say, no, this is what Congress wanted us to do, see? And asking Congress, can you put that in the committee report even if you can't get it in the bill? So things like that, I think, are kind of how we might see some of this play out. Um, Rachel, it's a classic example. I think I think it was a brilliant exposition, um, but it's also thinking like yourself. The people who are opposed to this are libertarians. They don't, they don't care what's in the committee report. They don't care what they, they just don't want government at all. They don't want it at all. 
So you're exactly right. So you go a bunch of liberal law professors citing them and they say, well, maybe if we do it this way, hedge it that way, that's all really good advice. But you never know when lightning's going to hit your rule. And it's the lack of predictability, as I see it, which is which is just nuts, right? I mean, you're trying to figure out how to build a car, right? Are they going to go back and say, well, you don't need airbags anymore because some federal judge says you don't? Uh, I mean, I don't know, right? Are we going to change, you know, the way tires are made? Are we, I mean, all the, we can't tell because it's also retroactive and it's in the hands of such a diverse bunch of judges. And we're really seeing this now in guns. We're really seeing this in abortions. People really rolling back and saying, well, the FDA was wrong 20 years ago or 25 years ago. They were just wrong. How do you know that? Well, because I'm a federal judge. I know that. I mean, that's crazy making. But what you're saying is terrific. I mean, it really is excellent. I hadn't heard it exposed you know, so clearly and so well. And that's where the agencies ought to be doing, should be doing. That's all excellent advice. And will it work? Who knows? I think the ultimate question will be less, um, less life expectancy of the rule as it is the life expectancy of the justices who are making these decisions. Um, that's the only way a lot of this is going to change. Ilaria, did you want to weigh in on that question as well? No, I will uh, leave the floor for the next question. Okay, well, so coming coming right to you then. Um, and so Jim, Jim talked about the state level, um, as, as we'd expect, and he talked about California's rulemaking capabilities and how that might drive things. And California is already known for being able to drive a lot of standards nationwide. Um, you, you talked a little bit about what, what, what would happen to the states and what the state courts might do. Um, did you want to elaborate on that as well as maybe what Jim was talking about in, in terms of some states being um, being able to drive a form of like state level rulemaking process? Sure, and uh, and perhaps uh, James can also come in uh, at some point. So of course, uh, uh, we have to differentiate here between uh, between states. Uh, not all states have the same uh, the same weight. Um, how will a state uh, courts rule and how will a state legislatures uh, respond to this? So we haven't had many cases uh, so far, uh, but we expect, uh, for example, uh, the Wisconsin uh, Supreme Court to take a different path than, uh, than, the, than, than the federal court, or, or at least there have been signs that make us think perhaps the, the approach would be, would be different. Um, However, uh, this is, as some commentators have, have said, this is a case that has been uh, uh, perhaps revolutionary. And, uh, and we don't know yet what the consequences of, of this uh, revolution could be. As I said in my talk, um, one of my main uh, concerns was whether the, the West Virginia, where the major questions doctrine will be able to live in parallel with uh, with Chevron, and what is then the place of, of Chevron? So, in other words, states have been used, uh, uh, you know, to, to continue using the Chevron deference for forty years. Where will Chevron go? I mean, is this really an overruling of Chevron, or will this continue to live in parallel with Chevron? I think that this is a decision that the states. Uh, court also will do, and and the decisions also will also, I think, focus on uh, 
um, and again, what is the issue at stake? So not also about states, but what is the issue at stake? So the major questions doctrine only will cover major issues, big political, big economic issues that usually are those issues that Congress have not been able to resolve because of the deadlock in Congress, because of the increasing polarization in Congress. So again, will the uh, will the doctrine be relegated only to those big, important issues, political issues that Congress has not been able to resolve? Will there still be space for uh, for Chevron for Chevron administrative deference? I think that this is this is the question, and many states will respond in different ways. Will respond in different ways according to their ideological uh, leaning, of course as well. So we, we mentioned California. I think California is a great example, but is also uh, in some ways an exception uh, because it's uh, it's one of the biggest states, uh, one of the states that has much weight and you cannot really compare um, the, the weight of California with this, the weight of other states. So on, on one hand, really, I think that the uh, we, we should be watching how we'll uh, uh, well, not only the, the states deal with this, but actually the jurisprudence of the Supreme Court will uh, will lead um, on those. Well, I've been an ex uh, I've been I've been a, a proponent for twenty five years and had absolutely no luck on multi state rulemaking. There's absolutely no reason at all why the states themselves could not sit together and and inform it. And if the I think most state courts would continue with severed deference. You know why? Because there's nothing wrong with severed deference. Nobody's got a problem with it except, you know, you know, the, the extremist voices. Certainly the business community really doesn't mind Chevron deference. They're comfortable with it. They make a lot of money. They don't really want to get involved in all this. But if you were the multi-state rulemaking, maybe I'm fantasizing here, some states would accept it, some would not. But by the very nature of how things are sold and marketed today, it doesn't take many states to drive the national market. So there is that solution. It's sort of a, a Rube Goldberg sort of solution. It's sort of, you know, piecing everything together. Um, but in terms of major, major is not necessarily big economically major is going to be big in the eyes of a beholder the business community does not like uncertainty they want stability that's how you make money you have stable rules they don't want this but there's always one businessman who can say you know what if i just break the rule everybody else is living on make a lot of money and if i get the right judge who says it's a major question problem from something that congress passed in the clean air act you know 45 years ago I may make a bunch of money before they catch up with me. That's entirely possible. So this whole system is driving towards uh, um, illegal, not Ill I would say illegal, but certainly out of culture behavior by businesses who drop to the bottom line. You know, the ones who are always on the edge anyway. And I'll say, well, throw, let's, I've talked to litigators. Let's throw the major question doctrine in, you know, when government comes after me, why not? Right. And so how do you keep the cases from being removed from state court to federal courts? Another whole legal doctrine. The Supreme Court could tighten up their mistake in several different levels if they understand it's a mistake. And they might if their business community friends kind of explain some basic rules to them. But if you're dealing with ideologues, then you're part of the Satan's plan. So, you know, I can't do much of that there. Can I add just one quick thing that 
that I happened to, to check out um, on the Wisconsin uh, Supreme Court uh, reaction to, to the major questions doctrine. Um, so there is actually a quote here that, that I wanted to, um, to read out loud. And, uh, and it says, let me, I lost it now. Okay. So it says here, uh, the Wisconsin Supreme Court has called the federal decision eminent and highly persuasive, but not controlling. Um, so I think that this is, this is the approach here. On one hand, state Supreme Courts feel the pressure and the weight of, of the federal Supreme Court uh, um, inclination, but on the, other, on the other hand, states have their own constitutions and uh, their own constitution will deal with their own uh, states' uh, issues. So it would be really interesting to see how the different states' constitution will be stimulated and used to respond to the challenge. Thank you. Thank you, Ilaria. Um, I should say that if people want to start putting their questions in uh, in, in the, the Q&A box, they can do that if they, um, if they don't want to uh, verbally express their questions. But I'll, I'll uh, start doing that in just a moment. I realize that Mike, uh, Liverite had asked a question before, and maybe this is for you, Rachel. Um, he asks, uh, asked during the presentations, doesn't the legislature have a period to prevent any agency policy from going into force now? So why do they need to reaffirm any policy that the Supreme Court opposes? Yeah, so I saw this question um, in the in the chat, and I love this question because so what Mike is referencing is uh, the Congressional Review Act, which is a law that says um, after agencies go through that whole process, they write a proposed rule, they get comments, they get to the final rule, they send it to Congress, and Congress has a period where they can basically say nah, um, and they can do it um, pretty quickly procedurally. Um, the problem with that is that it's subject uh, subject to a presidential veto, um, right? And we just saw this with Biden. Um, uh, so um, it's not a, a unilateral overturn by Congress. So so that's a, a thing to note about it. But I don't think that really answers Mike's question, which is like, wait, wait, Congress can already weigh in. And if you did something we didn't like, um, we couldn't stop it, right? And just to point this out, Congress has lots of other tools that they can use to stop a rule. They don't have to wait all the way to the rule is finalized. Right? They hear about the rule during the public comment period. Believe me, if it's a controversial rule, uh, interest groups are reaching out to their members of Congress. Members of Congress write letters to agencies all the time. They request briefings. They do all of this kind of stuff. So they are not checked out on these big rules at all. So the question is really the right one to say, wait, they, they have oversight already. Why do we need the courts to come in later and say this shouldn't have happened? Um, and I think what this question sort of underlies this idea that we have an optimal design. We do not have an optimal design. This is poorly designed, like institutional designers should like shake their heads and be so frustrated with the way this is all working because this is oversight and doing it in this post hoc way through the courts is not a really good way to design good public policy and good oversight by the legislative branch. So this is, as Jim said, there's an agenda here that's very separate from the actual policies in question, 
right? It is a question about the role of power and how it's uh, aggro or allocated across the three branches. Um, and it is completely divorced from whether like the, the Congress likes this labor role or this whatever role. It is a totally separate question. Um, and I think the, the question is right to be asked, but it sort of misses the point that we're like talking politics here rather than policy. Okay, thank you very much, Rachel. Um, I'm gonna go ahead and ask if anyone would like to ask a question. I can't see all the different uh, people in the boxes right now, but you can either write your question in the Q&A box or just um, raise your hand if you've got a question for any of the panelists. If not, I will keep asking um, my own, uh, which are that, um, so, Oh, okay. Uh, Robin Taylor, you have a question. Would you like to unmute yourself? Like to unmute yourself? Uh, given the degree to which uh, rulemaking power has to be delegated to agencies rather than Congress, and given the difficulty of Congress persons uh, adequately scrutinizing the volume of rules that the agencies create, how great is the scope for regulatory capture of these agencies by various groups and what uh, measures exist to prevent it or safeguard against it? Is that for anyone in particular? Uh, no, all panelists. Okay. Who would like to take a crack at that? I can jump in. Um, so I think the question is about like, um, Congress isn't really overseeing rulemaking as carefully as it could, right? Which I think is fair. Like we we don't see Congress weighing in on all that many rules. Um, and there's thousands of rules. There's about 3000 every year. Um, and so our interest groups like capturing agencies, I think that's something that, you know, we open scholarly debate. Uh, in uh, We have a lot of research that looks at the public comment period and who writes to agencies, right? And we can tell that businesses write more than like your average Joe to an agency, which is not surprising. But even when they write, they get more of what they want. Um, there's a lot of different studies that show that. Again, not surprising, but as someone who studies rulemaking, I can say, well, by the time that public comment period has already come about, the whole idea that we're making a policy in this area and that um, we're going to do a pro propose X rather than Y is a, its own policy conversation that's happening a lot of times behind closed doors. That's we don't have a lot of oversight or insight into as scholars. And that's where a lot of the sort of influence into rulemaking comes and the groups that are able to reach agencies and that sort of closed door um sessions that those are the sort of groups that are more linked into the system anyway so is there industry influence and capture um i mean i don't i don't love the word capture i think it doesn't really um, explain what's happening i think there's varying levels of influence depending on which agency you're talking about and which interest groups um some of it i don't think is all bad right it, uh, industry knows a lot about the policies we need as a society um, and the kinds of rules we need um, a lot more than like my grandma does right like um and so so i don't think it's all like as nefarious as it might seem but definitely um there's a lot of influence from corporate uh commenters industry 
um, in, interest groups more generally. Um, but I, I would be hesitant to classify it all as a sort of like capture under that heading. Okay, Jim Ilaria, do you guys want to weigh in on that one at all? I just think I think Rachel nailed it. Um, when I was younger, I was more concerned about Rachel's agency capture than I am now. I actually have, um, in in light of the last five or six years of the American experience, um, I'm kind of rooting for the civil service. I used to call them bureaucrats too. I don't anymore. I think there are a lot of heroes out there working in our civil service who are really trying to trying to do this right. And um, and um, when you see the forces arrayed against them and the pressures that are under them, I think agency capture is, uh, I used to think it was a huge problem and now I think less so, just for myself. I, I definitely agree. Uh, from, from what I've seen with the notice and comment procedure from, from a legal point of view, really, agencies, uh, agencies there, staff and, uh, and, uh, and personnel are experts in their area. Uh, so yes, they can be influenced. They are, of course, uh, you know, subject to the to the industry. And uh, but but they are they decide they are the experts in the area. There is a reason why they are there, right? Um, so I do see, and I do still have trust in the in the in their expertise. And and, and actually, this is the reason for administrative deference historically. Uh, it has been because the expertise was there, was in the agency. Now, the fact that has recently become more of an excuse to get uh, get rid of uh, the, the, the Congress deadlock and uh, because Congress cannot pass a statute, then we leave it to the agencies to regulate. That doesn't change the fact that historically agencies have regulated because they were the, the actual place where regulations could have been made by by experts that we don't have in Congress. Um, so I, I would, you know, conclude on a positive note uh, from, from this point of view. Okay, <clears throat> three cheers for civil servants. Um, Francesca Verda has a question. She says, I'm, right, I'm currently looking at writing a paper on international affairs and politics as a game. Do you see politics continuing down this path as being treated as a game with consequences of actions being less considered and with poor accountability? Um, would anyone like to take that one? Jim, you were kind of addressing those issues before about consequences of the court. I don't, I don't get the use of the word game. I mean, the existence of the planet is at stake, fundamental human rights are at stake. I don't I don't understand game theory and all that stuff. That's just not my world, so. Well, maybe just the part about actions being con less considered or with poor accountability. That's the final part of the question. I don't say it again, I may, or maybe you would answer it. Just the 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 way the way well kind of like what you were saying before right about you you described the Supreme Court as not considering consequences in its decisions at one point. Oh yeah, right? the, oh, the Supreme Court has no idea what it's doing. Uh, okay. Do you no think reason, that'll continue? Is what she's asking? Yeah. Well, well, I, I think there's no reason the way they're selected that they could have any idea what they're doing. Uh, their own personal life experiences are stunningly limited. Uh, the loss of justices such as Souter and. Uh, and, and Kennedy uh, and Sandra Day O'Connor, uh, justices who actually had some sort of life, may have actually tried a case, may have actually walked into a courtroom, it was all gone. They're all the law professors and superbly ambitious people who, who really, with one or two exceptions, woke up, you know, 
walked out of the cradle and said, I wanted to be a Supreme Court justice and I'm going to hedge every remark. And I see that my students all the time, they're always hedging their remarks. They're afraid to speak up because they're, you know, the really ambitious ones. So as a result, the idea they get all these amicus briefs, Lord knows if they read them, they can't possibly. So they hire clerks just like them, just like themselves, younger versions. And so they don't understand. They have no idea. When they made the abortion decision, I think cynics say, no, I think they actually believe, oh, well, now it's back to the states. That's preposterous. I mean, that's not how the that's not how we live, right? The guns, oh well, we're just gonna go back to the rules in 1805 because you know. Alexander Hamilton sent an email to James Madison after drinking a little Madeira and said, we should do it this way. I mean, these, these are preposterous rulings. The idea of a country of 350 million people would be governed by people making these decisions. They just don't know. So hopefully someone, they don't live complete isolation. They're all here in Washington with me. Someone will talk to them about some of the devastating impacts because of the, the instability this brings to, to the business community. I want to, I mentioned that earlier, and, and I think it's I think it's really important. You, you're getting ready to invest hundreds of millions of dollars in something, hundreds of millions of dollars, and some federal judge somewhere is going to just throw that all up in the air, and the judges can say, well, you know, after it's fully appealed and briefed, I'll take a look at that in three years. That's that's not how the business community works. That's not how the that's not how corporate decisions are made. And so I'm, I think the bigger, the biggest force for stability in all of this will be the business community itself, markets itself. People will say that's, you know, this is getting crazy out here and it will overwhelm all of our well-meaning briefs and memos and theories that, that we lay out. Um, and, and that happens. I mean, you watch, look, major question doctrine was invented eight months ago, really. It could disappear eight months from now. They could say, eh, it changed my mind. Five of us changed their mind. Eh, it's such a good idea. I mean, that's how they live because they have these lifetime appointments, sort of like tenured professors. They have these lifetime jobs that they really have no consequences for what they do. Um, and, you know, that, that could happen. I'm not optimistic, but it could happen. Okay, thank you, Jim. Um, Ilaria, go ahead. Can I add something on this? So on, on one hand, James, you say they don't know what they're doing, these, these nine Supreme Court justices. On the other hand, it seems to me uh, that perhaps they know very well what they're doing in their crazy <laughs> uh, ideology. Uh, because, uh, well, when I think about the nine Supreme Court justices and the criticism around the power of the Supreme Court to... Uh, to strike down acts passed by Congress, this uh, you know superpowered of judicial review. Um, on one hand, I think about, for example, uh, Chief Justice Roberts' decision in the Sibelius case. Uh, I think that he knew really well what he was doing there. He was trying to strike down part of a big uh, healthcare reform in the United States and and to let survive another part of the reform. So he did know very well what he was doing and he had been very creative in the way in which they decided to uphold the healthcare reform. Example, so I think that top one, yeah. Your, your example proves my point. If you look at the Sibelius decision by Justice Roberts, you see that he really wrote on the other side. And then he went home at night and said, this is crazy. Billions of dollars have been invested. I can't do this, right? So, but it took, <laughs> it took, I didn't mean to overspeak. Anyway. <laughs> but but, but I, mean, I mean, it proves the point that it took that kind of astounding ability to, to, to get someone 
some sort of reality to somehow sink in. And when I say they, don't, they certainly understand their ideology, they certainly are all excited about, you know, how guns were regulated. <laughs> we got a judge who just said, there's nothing illegal about scraping serial numbers off of handguns because when the Second Amendment passed, no guns had serial numbers. I mean, this is crazy making, right? And so this is the problem of thinking like yourself. I mean, this is nuts, right? Why would somebody take the serial numbers off a handgun? It's because it's illegal and they're going to shoot somebody. That's why they're doing it. And so everybody knows that. Congress knows that. The ATF knows that. That rule's been on the books for 20 years. But they say, well, let's, let's look back and see. Maybe we should change it. So you're correct. If the influence gets overwhelming, the justices might, but they do not understand the full implications of how the rest of us live, right? They do not know what it's like in our town. They forget the fact that when they get in a car and they put a seatbelt on, that seatbelt's there because of government. And there's an airbag in that car. That airbag is there because of government. They have forgotten that. Thrown into this sort of, uh, you know, the justices like Alito, into this sort of a, a libertarian mindset. Um, they don't have any concept. They just take it for granted because they're living in this, in a, they're driving a safe car, right? Uh, and safety provisions that were fought tooth and nail, but now they're here and we all live with them. Everybody lives the same rule. Why? Because administrative law works. Yeah. Yeah, but on the other hand, as I see this conservative majority and conservative decision really as the result of, uh, you know, the, the, the ideology of the last uh, eight years in, in, in the United States and on the of the influence of the Federalist Society as well on the Supreme Court. Um, mm -hmm. When you when you, you when you just you know if you search for the West Virginia decision, then Federalist Society is everywhere around that. Uh, they claim it's their own uh, uh, creation. Actually, it's thanks to to the influence of of the Federalist Society that we have this decision. So actually, those justices, yes, perhaps don't know what they are doing, but they have a very strong ideological basis for doing what yeah. they do. It's uh, yeah. it, it, and it's grounded in. Uh, uh, decades of conservative jurisprudence um, that and has only arised now in the courts because we have a conservative majority. But the American people haven't changed. Kansas votes 60-40 pro-choice. American people haven't changed, right? The American people overwhelmingly don't want to have non-compete clauses when you work at a fast food restaurant. American people overwhelmingly. So the response has been to eliminate referendums to eliminate the opportunity for people to actually express their views. And this is replete over and over and over again. And so, but so you're right. It is an ideologically based as opposed to a fact-based worldview. It's ideologically based as opposed to a fact-based. And we administrative law types, we're fact people, right? That's what, that's what we're trying to do. I love to hear from industry on, on rulemaking because they know so much more about how their industry actually works. It's fabulously interesting and important, and it keeps government from making mistakes. But if you eliminate the whole product by putting it in the hands of one federal judge, good luck. I'm going to jump in and uh, say to people, please keep writing your questions in the Q&A, or, or would somebody like to ask one verbally right now? I can pause for one moment. I don't see any hands coming up. So I'm going to give Rachel a chance to weigh in if you'd like to on the previous discussion that we just had. 
about accountability and, and it so wasn't forth. it wasn't discussion it was a rant on my part and i'm sorry I and, and from mine <laughs> sorry i i think i'll just cap off the conversation by saying i think the the conversation is really highlighting so political scientists which is my background i'm a political scientist think about courts as an ideological space which is not often so it's refreshing to hear lawyers talk about it in that way the courts making ideological decisions and that really like what we're highlighting here is the lack of pragmatism and that's like what jim is pointing out about industry needing stability is that there's no pragmatism to all of this like how do we run a government that and solve policy problems is not part of this conversation which is really really fine let's let congress do everything how is congress going to do that we it's not set up as an institution to do those things so the conversation is very much intellectual and ideolo ideological rather than like geared towards solving policy problems and that is a huge problem i think so okay thank you very much um more questions from the audience I'd like to hear from Colin. Okay, um, I can give you more. So, well, one, one thing that's interesting here is that, um, I mean, you, you've indicated that, that, all of you have indicated to some extent that we don't know what will happen. I mean, there's some some things we can see happening, but, but Jim in particular, you've said that business likes predictability, right? And so with, with state AGs and with multi-state lawsuits, one of the reasons that they've said they don't like multi-state lawsuits is because they, they like predictability, and so they argue for for federal standards, right? Often, um, which is what they want. But it it almost makes you wonder if if this is like much ado about nothing, maybe, right? Maybe business will push back significantly and realize that there's not really a, a good alternative to to what we have in terms of deference to deference to bureaucratic agencies. And it's just that you know, it, think things will go on as they have been because because there's that need for certainty. Right. So, I mean, you're talking about the like the libertarians and such and wanting to do away with things, but we can't realistically do that because businesses make things and then there's there's inevitably going to be the need for certainty about, about rules about what they're making, whether it be organic fruit like uh, like Rachel talked about or the one of these things. So so maybe maybe there's not a lot of reason to be alarmed about this. Oh, there's plenty of reason to be alarmed. Uh, the business community doesn't speak with one voice. I mean, they can. I mean, we have enough self-styled individual multi-billionaires now that they can they can break off from the pact of what I would call the traditional chamber of commerce American. And there's huge battles going on now within the community trying to figure out a way to get to one voice. But the 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 individual players who walk out, uh, where you have one individual has $1.6 billion to give out in dark money political contributions. Astounding, it's astounding. And there are directing, by the way, the question of the state courts. Um, you, I mean, you kept mentioning the Wisconsin Supreme Court, which of course is in the most bitter political election for the court right now. I posted something in the, in the chat room on it, um, which could completely change that because they're focusing on the election of state judges as well. But, um, it's a it's 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 I think there's plenty to be alarmed about because a lot of damage can go along a lot of damage can get done along the way right I mean major questions doctrine gets thrown into gun regulation gets thrown into abortion regulation there's a lot of human beings whose lives are going to be changed forever because of these sort of ideological decisions made from on high um, so my my view is obviously an extraordinary minority 
in in my where I work. So uh, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't take my word for anything. There are plenty of people who have a different view. So I kind of heard Jim saying like, well, maybe like corporate America will save us because they're going to realize that there's no stability in this. And that is like a, a great hope and aspiration. But I feel like it's very hard to convince the CEO of Chrysler or whatever firm that things like the non-delegation doctrine really are going to bear on their bottom line immediately, right? And and it's unclear, right, how any individual rule or case is going to actually affect, it might in some cases make them richer, right? So they might see an immediate case that's like actually going to cut in their favor, but the long-term trajectory is what we're talking about. And individual actors are very bad at that solving that collective action problem, right? Of saying, oh, wait, we as a community are going to maybe be worse off. It's like, who's the collect, who's going to step in and provide that public good for that community? It's not clear, you know, that the Chamber of Commerce is pushing in a direction against this. Um, and so, so it seems like I agree that they definitely are going to be losers in the long term, but are they going to be proactive enough to weigh in now? They're not great at long term stuff. So yeah. you and I are in wild agreement. Yeah. And uh, one more case uh, to watch, I think, that will involve the major uh, questions doctrine in the near future is the student's loan case uh, before the Supreme Court. I just uh, found the name is Biden versus Nebraska. I think th that is one that will give us, I think, some answers as to what is then the direction of the Supreme Court. It seems that the Supreme Court is inclined uh, to wipe out the decision of, uh, of, of the agency to, um, to erase the debts of, of the students. And this is because of a major question doctrine issue. And that will be an absolute, you know, I imagine all the students, uh, you know, with a debt expecting now their debt, their debt to be uh, to be cancelled and, and the reaction uh, against the Supreme Court decision like this, th that would be really a case in which then the power of these nine justices will be will be clear to, to everyone. Um, well, it will be. I think I think you make a good point. They might very well couch that decision in terms of major question doctrine. But what disturbed me the most, really, in that debate, and it's a legitimate argument on both sides of being able to wipe out this huge debt without any congressional action. Chief Justice kept saying, you know, I just don't think it's fair. You know, it's not fair that one person's loan gets permitted and another one's. And I'm thinking, hey, judge, you're a judge. Fair is not a legal doctrine. Fair is what do you personally think is fair? And you're not a congressman, judge. You don't get to make those decisions. You're not the president. So the idea that the court has, without even, and nobody blinked on this, nobody, none of the national commentators got into this. The, the, the idea, the arrogance is so great. You give somebody a lifetime appointment, they're going to be there for the rest of their life. I, I think we'll go this way instead of that way. That's not judge making, right? That, that's the arrogance of an institution itself, which is constitutionally granted this extraordinary non-reviewable power. So they may very well put it in, in, um, major questions, but they just could sit down and say, I don't know, let's sit down with their spouse and say, hey, honey, I, I just don't think that's fair. Let's do it another way. Who are they to do that? Believe me, I'm telling my grandson, he better get ready to pay off his loans. I'm going to tell you that. He's, he's not going to get a break.
Well, Jim, you mentioned before that maybe another maybe another path to predictability is if judges realize, okay, that this is, you know, the, the the consequences can be too much, right? You invest billions of dollars and then something gets overturned, right? And you mentioned standing at one point. Now, stand the standing issue doesn't seem to have gotten as much. I mean, it's gotten some, but not as much media attention in that case, right? Because you have Nebraska apparently arguing on behalf of Missouri in the student loan case, yeah. right? So yeah. um, I, I don't know if that's just like a, a fluke, right? An accidental thing, but I, or, or maybe it's a pathway to standing but issues becoming- all the, law, like, all the law professors talked about standing before that argument. They were lined up 10 deep in every law school in the world saying, oh, Nebraska doesn't have standing, which they clearly don't. So often that they had to argue in favor of Missouri, it was all crazy making. But when they got to the argument, Judges didn't care about standing. They said, we want to decide this one because we don't think it's fair. That's not a legal standard. That's just what I feel like doing today, right? And that's no way to guide a country, you know? And I think the same thing with guns. I don't think they seriously worry about what the law was like in, you know, in, uh, in uh, you know, 1801. They just, they just want everybody to have a gun. So they say, let's write it up in a way that everybody can have a gun. You can bring it to church. You can bring it wherever you want to go, you know. And then they evidently don't care about the First Amendment because they're saying that, you know, you can bring a judge to church. And of course, what if the church wants to ban it? They have First Amendment rights. So they may start to rethink some things when they get a little bit more pushback. But I just think they do what they want. I'm sorry. That's that's my, it's always been my view of the court. Ever since, ever since my experience with Bush v. Gore, it's pretty clear to me that the justices just come in and do what they want. That's why there's these big fights. Everybody knows that. That's why there's these big fights, these big congressional hearings that are all laid out in all these different ways. But bottom line, you get to be a Supreme Court judge. You get to do what you want. Yeah. Kind of like well, professor. Well, and that's why, and that's why Rachel and I, and probably many of us here, uh, see courts as an ideological space, as she said before, right? So there's even prior to Bush versus Gore, there's there's plenty of of evidence going, uh, particularly the Supreme Court, right? Not not all courts, but Supreme Court. You could Court. say that's from the other side. You could say the Warren Court was just making things up, just granting rights to criminal defendants because they felt like it. I mean, you can build this. I mean, I'm enough of a lawyer that I can build the argument both ways. I mean, I, th I think you're correct. I think it's an institutional creation that. Um, I believe is out of control going one direction, but I was raised at a time when a lot of people thought it was out of control in another direction. Yes, okay. Um, on the political nature of the Supreme Court, I think th this is nothing surprising. It is actually rooted in the way in which Supreme Court justices are nominated, right? I mean, if we do for a moment a bit of a comparison with this country, for example, with our uh, uh, Supreme Court judges, well, uh, there is a huge difference in the way in which they approach a case in their ideological background. I'm thinking about my students when I start to talk to them about uh, judicial review in the US and, uh, and the equivalent of constitutional review in uh, in this country and they're all very surprised at the very beginning when I start telling them that there is a, a divide in the Supreme Court between uh, liberal and conservative justice. So they're like, okay, I don't know, first of all, the name of uh, the UK Supreme Court judges and I don't know what is their ideological uh, um, inclination. Uh, uh, so actually, th this is not surprising. This is, I guess, also what makes uh, um, US constitutional law so fascinating, so different than what happens uh, here in Europe, 
um, it is it is the nature of of, of your system, and uh, and it is how it it has been working until until now. From uh, this is from actually a very European perspective of of the issue. Yeah. We'll call UK Supreme Court judges can't strike down laws, right? And they're also, it, it, they, they at least try to appear more neutral in the appointment of judges than than, in the, than it is in the United States. So um, if there are, this is the final opportunity to ask questions. We haven't had many from the audience today, um, but if you want to ask any, this would be the time. We've, we've had a couple of people thank Well, I think that's quite bad timing. We'll just <laughs> we'll just wait and see if Colin pops back. Um, so I think we have a question here from Andrea. Andrea, oh, yeah. yes, please unmute yourself. Sorry, just one thing. The Supreme Court here in England, because I'm I'm based in England. I work in England between Hungarian and English, and mainly law is a problem as well. I mean, they've got the same problem with politics, that it's paid by the state, whatever I do, and it's not supposed to be politically committed, but it's a big problem and it's always a big row, but they are not supposed to strike down legislation. Because <laughs> we've got parliament supreme when it comes to legislation. Yes, indeed. So obviously, the, the doctrine of parliamentary supremacy in this uh, in this country forbids the UK Supreme Court from striking down any act passed by 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 Parliament, and and therefore the UK Supreme Court is much less a political institution mm -hmm. than uh, than the US Supreme Court. Um, however, the the UK courts can issue a declaration of incompatibility uh, yeah, with some. Acts of the of passed by Parliament, so so they, they can they can refer to Parliament back. Yeah, that's what they can do. Yes. Yeah, that's okay. a, quite a different system. They don't um, enforce. They don't enforce legislation. They refer. Okay. Um, I think I froze a moment ago and I don't know if, uh, yeah, I just, this is like the third time I dropped out by mistake. So, um, yeah, every, everything I read, I think was, was into the ether. Um, but it was just saying that this is, uh, this was the final event of the term. Um, you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Our Twitter handle is, uh, UCL SPP. So, um, thank you to the audience for being here. Thank you so much, Jim, Rachel, and Ilaria. And, uh, I really enjoyed the discussion. I think everybody else did too. So, um that's it and and my apologies again for my time zone flub uh jim and rachel but uh you guys handled it like stars thanks. okay take care everyone thanks thank you everyone thank you bye bye